welcome to Conscious Pathways, the podcast where we explore the intersection of education and social justice through transformative conversations. I am your host, Brittany, and before I get into our absolutely magnificent guest, I just wanted to give you a quick heads up that when this episode is coming out, this is the last week of February, um, and this is the last week to get your extra 15% off on the Curated Black History Month 2024 list on my bookshop.org page. Um, it has everything you could look for. It has children's books to poetry to cookbooks, nonfiction. Uh, so if you're in the market for some books written by uh, Black authors and celebrating Black authors, uh, check out the link in the show notes below. Uh, don't forget to use the code BHM24. Um, and that'll get you an extra 15% off up until February 29th. So don't forget to check that out. It's right down there. And speaking of celebrating and honoring amazing Black minds, I want to introduce you to our guest for today, which is Dr. Megan Green. Dr. Green is an assistant professor of raciolinguistic justice in early childhood teacher education at Erickson Institute. For the past 17 years, she has served in the field of early childhood education as a researcher, an adjunct professor, a pre-kindergarten teacher, to fourth grade teacher, a university field-based liaison, an anti-bias and anti-racist training facilitator. Her scholarship centers Black feminist thought and darkened feminist epistemology within early childhood settings, specifically highlighting the diverse lived experience of BIPOC early childhood educators through arts-based quantitative inquiry methods. Megan's research interests include teachers' lived experiences on their use of cultural sustaining pedagogy, anti-racist and anti-bias teacher education in college university settings, and anti-bias, anti-racist early childhood education. In her forthcoming edited volume, Daughters of Reimagined Early Childhood Education, Reflective Narratives in Black Women Educators in Texas During COVID-19, Megan uses darkened narrative inquiry to examine the lived experiences in the pedagogical development of Black women early childhood educators. I know that was a lot of information and it can feel kind of intimidating because there might be some new terminology that you might not have heard. There's definitely new terminology that I haven't heard that came up during this interview. Um, but Dr. Green is so fantastic. She's amazing at just explaining the depth of her work and why it is so important. This conversation was just so just life-giving and incredible. And I learned so, so much. And I'm so excited to just share this with you. So let's hop into that interview. Hi, welcome to Conscious Pathways. Today, I am joined by Megan Green. Hello. Hi, how are you doing, Brittany? I am doing so well. Thank you for asking. How are you? I am well. well. Yay. I'm so excited to have you on and have you joining me in conversation. Um, I know we're going to have some really just interesting topics and things that I don't even know about. So <laughs> I'm really excited <laughs> to just learn about these new things. Um, I will say I was doing my research beforehand. So I was kind of just Googling you and looking at your website, looking at all the beautiful, wonderful things that you just do in the world. Uh, first of all, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but I love, I think it's your dissertation that starts with like Sister Outsider. Mm -hmm. And I was like kind of reading through that. And I was like, this first of all, this is amazing. But I love it because that's like my favorite Audre Lorde book. And I was just like, is, is this? <laughs> and and it, it most definitely was. Um, and one of my committee members, you know, that was the way that I was able to compare okay. um, to join the work to the English department. Like, really? gosh, 
the education dissertation that is referencing Audre Lorde. Yes, I want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That that's how you, you you reel them in. I love this. You know. <laughs> I have it somewhere on my my book list, my bookshelf behind me, and it is such a beautiful work. And I haven't reread it in a couple of years now, so I feel like I'm feeling inspired to go back and reread it because I remember feeling so empowered after I read that book. I was like, dang, I want to do things with life now. You know, like I too could go out and like disrupt this myth. Exactly, exactly. Like that, that could be me. Um, so loved that, um, and. You know, one question I always want to ask first is, so why early childhood education? What got you interested in education in general? What was the inspiration? Who inspired you? So the funny story is always that I'm a third generation educator. My grandmother was an educator. My mom was an educator. Um, But growing up, I saw how difficult it was for educators. Um, I wanted to steer away from that. So I actually majored in anthropology in undergrad. Um, and I wanted to be an anthropologist. I was really inspired by Zorno Hurston. Um, I ended up going to Howard because of Zorno Hurston and the connections to anthropology um, and to, of course, her literary works. But then my junior year at Howard University, I was uh, volunteering um, in Northeast DC and it was working with first and second graders and I fell in love. <laughs> and so instead of just completely saying, I'll stay here, right? in DC another like two years to switch the major, I decided to um, do an alternative certification program and then kind of make the switch into early childhood education. Um, and it was really just from being exposed to just the brilliance of young children, right? There's just this love yes. and this curiosity that I was like, you know, I love anthropology. I love the theoretical work that is there. I love studying culture, but there's something here that was more important to be a part of. So. Yes. Yes. And I love that. There is such a beauty and power. And I feel like that that happens with a lot of people who kind of fall into education. Right. <laughs> is that you get to experience the beauty and power of working with young children. And, and obviously, it's more than just hanging out with kids and playing with kids all day. It's there. It's just a thought process that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, you know, working with the school the other day and in this little girl was like showing me around the whole playground and everything was so marvelous to her, <laughs> you know, like as she was just showing like every little tiny rock that was in the dirt, every little tiny thing. She was like, look, do you see it? And I'm like, I, I do see it, <laughs> but it's just, it's just fascinating. The way that they see the world is just with such awe and wonder and the way that they investigate the world and just learning how they grow and learning how their brains work. It is a beautiful, glorious thing to get to be a part of. And I love it. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was the kicker for me, right? Like you running away from education for years and then um, because young mm. children are very persuasive <laughs> and they, they bring you in and wanting to be a part of, as you said, how they see the world, how they engage. Yes, yes. I love that. That is so exciting. (laughs) And it's really exciting that you're a third generation teacher. And that is also such a beautiful thing, just being able to see that 
you know, seeing the beauty that your, you know, your grandmother and your mother went through, but also seeing, you know, what the challenges and the struggles are like kind of firsthand. And I, you know, I'm assuming that that was also a part of, you know, your journey and a part of that research and, and what you continue to advocate for as well. Definitely. I think it was that part of how educators bring themselves into classrooms, right? Um, that was the part that inspired me to kind of focus in on the topic that I did um, and really probably sustain the work that I do now. Um, just kind of helping mm -hmm. those connections between how we bring ourselves fully into spaces. Yes. Yes. That is so important. I love, I love that you mentioned like bringing ourselves fully into education and, you know, from what I've seen in the things that you've written and of course, you know, the background of your dissertation, right? That is a really big part of that, especially when you're thinking about you know, people of color and especially black women who are predominantly within education, especially early childhood education, you know, statistically there's, there's a lot of, of brown people in this field and, how can we show up as our full selves in a system that is not designed for us to show up with our full selves is something that is definitely worth the research and it's worth, you know, diving more into because it, it's just, it's a fascinating experience as a person who's actively experiencing it. Yes, yes. And so what, a couple of things that I've noticed within your writings and things that you've talked about, and it's something that I, you know, as I mentioned before, it's not something I'm super familiar with. And it's something that, you know, it's a term that's really new to me. And I'm sure it's also fairly new to my audience. And that's, you know, in darkened narrative inquiry and in darkened feminist narrative. Uh, so could you kind of explain that a little bit more to, to me and the audience? And, and how does that influence your work? Right. So I think my experiences with Indarkin Feminist Narrative and Indarkin Narrative Inquiry really kind of stem from what we just did, right? This idea of how do we bring ourselves fully into forms mm. of education, right? In spaces that are sometimes um, what people refer to as a spirit murdering, right? They're, they're harmful. Mm. So when I was thinking about um, the methods I wanted to use, the methodology I wanted to use for this research, um, knowing that storytelling, was a big part of how I grew up. I'm from South Indiana, um, from the Dallas Fort Worth area. And so storytelling and this rich oral history uh, has always been a part of my life. But when looking at how to incorporate that from a research standpoint, right, um, what I found was that fields was still very, it was very much so dominated by these very white narratives, these very white ways of, and these very linear ways of telling stories. And that's not the tradition that I come from, right? Um, a story may start here, it may end in a different place, but it ends up back over here in this circular pattern. Um, and the storytelling was very fluid. And so I was searching for um, information about narrative inquiry that was culturally situated. And so I happened upon the work of um, Keandra McClish Boyd and Dr. Bakali Bhattacharya. And so that is. Uh, there are the theories with in dark and feminist native. And then the universe saw fit to put me in close connection um, with a previous colleague from Erickson Institute, Dr. Turner, um, who had developed in dark and um, feminist narrative for her dissertation. Mm. And so I think we were all searching for these ways of how do you honor Black women's ways of being, mm. knowing Black women educators ways of storytelling uh, that weren't found, right, in the literature that we were trying to, uh, to 
for that we are trying to pace our research in. So those two in particular really helped to push me. I think not just as a researcher, but just as a Black woman existing in the world, right? That I know that there are particular ways of being and the ways in which I engage with the world that weren't necessarily reflected in, in some of the things that other folks thought were seminal. But mm-hmm. those two methodologies in particular are very helpful for me. Yes, yes. And as you mentioned, that is so important and such a great thing to to start diving into and looking into because, you know, when I'm going through training and I'm going through, you know, college and all of that, a lot of the theorists that we look at are, you know, old dead white guys. Mm-hmm. Right. It wasn't, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, and it wasn't until I specifically went to a school that was, you know, grounded in social justice that I started to experience other ways of thought. And I started to experience other ways of teaching and, you know, I went to Pacific Oaks. And so with it, like, that's part of like, it's, you know, philosophy of the way the school exists. And so we all kind of sit in a circle when we're in class and, I experienced firsthand what that feels like to be able to show up as my authentic self as a student. And I experienced what that looks like as, you know, from an educator, from my professors showing up as their true and authentic selves. And I got to experience the, you know, the transformative power of that in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so being able to see that and experience that and feel it, then it shifted the way that I showed up in my own work as an educator. Um, And it showed up and how I show up in the classroom and how I show up for families in my, in my program uh, because I know that when I can show up as my full and authentic self, you know, I know that that's going to impact my students, right? The young students who are coming into my classroom, they can now feel safe to full, to be their full and authentic selves. And the families can be their full and authentic selves. And it just kind of causes this chain reaction <laughs> right? right. Uh, rather than trying to fit into this peg that just, it's not going to fit because it's not meant to fit. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So I, I, yes, I'm very, very, I love this topic and I love this idea. Uh, Like I said, it's very new to me, but I'm so excited to just dive more into it because it's, it's fascinating. (laughs) Um, And how have you seen, you know, these, these concepts kind of, how have you seen them in the real life and how have you seen them kind of make that impact outside of, you know, the, the research realm and into the, the practice realm? Right, right. So I think making the transition for me, so when I, um, I was an early childhood educator for oh, 15, 16 years. Right? And so when I graduated, my doctor made the transition into higher ed, um, there was a switch. Well, now I'm at the point of pre-service, early childhood, in-service. How do I still bring some of that same energy around honoring and censoring right, culturally situated ways of being and knowing um, into my practice of working with students. Um, and so how it's kind of come up for me is through, I think more so the assignments and how I engage with my students. So you mentioned mm-hmm. your experiences at Pacific Oaks and how that impacted you know, when you're now working with young children or working with families. Um, I think I wanted to keep that front and center. So every class period, right, we start with a how's your heart, right? Um, because it was a big thing coming up in, in dark and feminist narrative and in dark and narrative inquiry that 
the center of Black women's lived experiences is this idea of there is a, a spiritual aspect or a sacred aspect that goes kind of beyond some of the very limited ways that people have thought about spirituality, right? That when we're talking about Black women's connection to the more than human um, aspects of around us. And so when I make the connections with my students, they're well, how's your heart, right? Just not necessarily in a, how are things going with this course? Yes, I want to know how things are going with this course, but how are you, right? How are you? Mm-hmm. Um, how are things going that just, that folks don't necessarily ask you about, right? Um, yes. Because we know what the research tells us about educators, specifically early childhood, being, um, how we put in the position of being seen as essential workers, right, without necessarily the respect of what it means to be essential. Um, and how do we become not just essential to as cogs in the machine, right, but how do we become essential to ourselves, right? Um, and how do we honor those parts of ourselves that we can get to be essential? So I think all of those elements are um, in dark really found their way into how I engage and interact with people when it comes to biggest shifts. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And yeah, exactly. Like, how are we interacting? And how, I love that idea of like, genuinely asking, like, how is your heart and adding that, that spirituality component of it? Um, you know, because, you know, regardless of, you know, what your your relationship with spirituality is and your relationship with religion is, right? Like, we can all understand that there's a connection piece to that. And that's kind of like at the heart of it is really what we're saying. And really checking in, genuinely checking in with people. How is your heart? How is it doing? You know, what is, you know, what are the challenges? What is bringing you joy? And that really does set the pace when I'm doing, you know, trainings with educators. That's something I try to do. So there's, you know, when people do icebreaker questions, which is, it's nice, you know, but really, really getting a little bit deeper, (laughs) right? Because what we're really trying to do is we're trying to build a community for however long you have either, you know, this group of adults with or ever how long you have this group of children with, right, is making these authentic and vulnerable connections with people. And part of that is really connecting <laughs> um, and I think sometimes that gets that gets lost in when we're doing professional development or we're doing you know trainings or we're doing you know these other things it kind of gets lost in like you have all these other things that you're focusing on especially in education you're like okay I have my program outcomes I have you know DRDPs or I have all these different things that I'm focusing on and Yes, it's important that we are gathering data. Yes, it's important that we're making data-driven decisions. Yes, it's important that we are, you know, we have guidelines and standards that we're following. Yeah. Yes to those things. But also at the same time, we're connecting and working with people mm-hmm. who have so many other things going on in their lives and have, you know, choosing to spend this one time with us. We should be connecting with them and we should be fostering these really deep and important connections with them. Because uh, that's kind of how we tap into that that true, good, feel good learning. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. And so it seems like a big part of these kind of, you know, thought processes and, and methodologies is narrative um, and storytelling. And so we're talking about kind of anti-racist and anti-bias work. How does storytelling and narrative work kind of fit into you know, our work in advocacy into creating more inclusive environments through anti-bias and anti-racist work? 
So I think narratives and stories were, it's a first touch point, right? So we just spoke about the uh, connection and how do we build spaces for people so comfortable, right? In being vulnerable and creating these connections. So I tell people all the time, we can say that we want to create a sense of belonging, right? We can say that one of the goals um, as anti-bias educators or anti-racist educators is to create inclusive spaces where people feel a sense of belonging. But we don't create a sense of belonging by simply like wishing that it was so, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, if, if only, if it were that easy. Um, so If only. Right, if only. But we get to that space of having a sense of belonging, right? Through our actions. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, narrative and the power of stories and people having the space to kind of reflect on their own individual narratives. So there's something that I do. Uh, there's a assignment that kind of goes across the semester where every week students are kind of reflecting, reflecting on certain intersections um, of their identity. And some of that work is mm -hmm. individually, right? which is important for like that individual critical self-reflection, but also that's also part of the embarking piece of disrupting this binary between the individual and the collective, right? Sometimes we need to do some of that self-reflection um, communally, right? And I think that that's a huge part of what we do with anti-bias and anti-racist early childhood educators is that we're always accountable. And if you're not asking yourself how you are accountable to your community, right, um, then you're probably not fully doing the work that you think that you're doing. And I think stories are a way to help us to push that, that boundary of how do we stay accountable to ourselves and also accountable to those around us. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, in addition to that, I feel like our, our brains work in a very kind of story centered way whether, you know, from how our brains have developed. And I'm sure like, you know, you kind of studying anthropology, you kind of know these things too, but like our brains love stories. Um, I like to put that as the reason why I struggled with math because it's not a very story-based thing. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> I prefer stories. Thank you, Matt. Um, but yeah, our brains are just geared towards stories. They want to hear stories and we learn really well through kind of these narrative ways. And, you know, especially when we look back on, how we teach young children, a lot of that is through narrative and a lot of that is through either, you know, by reading books or doing, you know, puppets or a dramatic play. That's a lot of their learning is coming through either acting out things in life or seeing things acted out in life. Um, you know, they're always observing and they're always listening, even if we don't think that they are. <laughs> all the time, all the time. All, all the time. It's like, okay, <laughs> I tell you to do something a million times, but you're listening to that. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> But yes, narrative and, and storytelling is such an important thing. And it also is really engaging. It is something that draws people in and like you hear a really good story and like you start leaning in and you're like, I want to know more about this. <laughs> I want to see where this story is going and I'm curious. Um, and so especially when we're thinking about community and we're thinking about how are we being accountable to our community and those around us, I do agree. I think storytelling and using narratives is such a powerful way to do that, it brings in the it brings the real life into the practice. It's the praxis of it all, really. Uh, when you're bringing in, you know, that theory and practice, it becomes the praxis of it, and it's a beautiful thing to see. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely.
Yes, yes. Um, and so, you know, we're talking about narrative and we're talking about, you know, teachers. And of course, you know, the main theory is like really bringing in our true and authentic selves and bringing in our real life experiences, you know, so we're talking about culturally sustaining pedagogy. How do you think that teachers can, can bring their real life lived experiences into the classroom in an early childhood setting? So one of the things that, so within, from my dissertation research, but a part of that was that I was working with educators that I previously taught with. Um, and so these mm -hmm. women that I already had some connections to, right? Um, and I was able to observe just how in their classrooms they were able to embody, they didn't necessarily know that someone else would call it culturally sustaining pedagogy, right? Um, but it's exactly what they were doing. Right. So what they were doing was kind of matching what we see in the literature and what they were doing was mm. reciprocating authenticity. And so I think you mentioned it earlier, this idea of if I don't show up as um, authentically as I can, right? So they didn't hide them. Um, I had one of my co-workers well, was also from South Louisiana. So she was maybe from uh, an hour away from where I was from. Uh, and so whenever Mardi Gras would come around, right, she'd bring out every bit of uh, everything that kind of signaled she was from South Louisiana, right? And that was something that she felt comfortable sharing with her students. Um, many of us had, whether it was tattoos or piercings, um, and coming into an early childhood space, you know, there's still some level of respectability that folks have. And they're like, oh, my gosh, how are kids going to react to that? They're like, kids are going to react to it like, you know, so-and-so in my family has that exact same thing. Or I really like that. That's yeah. really pretty. Um, because it's the realness, right? As you said, it's the realness mm. of how we bring ourselves into the space. So I think yeah. when, as I'm talking to um, my students now in the higher education and, and we're going over these concepts of, well, what does it mean um, to bring culture? A space culture um, what we focus in on is this idea of how are you showing up okay? how are you showing up in the space um, and then when you show up in that space how are you with how you show up your lived experience is going to really impact the views that you have of children and seeing children as millions um, are you seeing them as just absolutely amazing beings, right? What is the lens that you're bringing? One of my friends from the study, um, she had this saying that was so amazing that I actually pulled it out and used, used it as a title for, for something else. She's like, it's not what you have on your walls. It's how you're delivering the messages to these kids that makes a difference. And that to me was, that was it. Because I think when people saw buzzwords like culturally relevant, culturally responsive, um, culturally sustainable, mm. thought, okay, I just need to get rep that I can stop at representation, right? So if I get a whole bunch of posters mm. or books that uh, really represent black and brown folks, I can stop there. And I never really have to interrogate mm. who I am and maybe how I'm using these materials because you could have fabulous children's books and still give a very problematic aloud, right? In how you're engaging yes. with young, just because the book yes. is great, doesn't mean your delivery or implementation 
of that is going to mm-hmm. be great if you are interrogating some of those things that you might have to unlearn. Right? Okay. And that was at the heart, I think, of my ideas around, well, what does it really mean for us to create culturally sustaining spaces that, yes, we need to shift the physical materials that we have in spaces, right? But if teachers aren't going to do some of that self-work and the ongoing work, then none of that's going to be. That is so incredibly beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is so true. And, you know, I remember being in the classroom years ago and, you know, I didn't even know what culturally, you know, responsive and culturally relevant sustaining pedagogy was, but it was a thing that I was doing. It was a thing that I was bringing into the classroom because it, it just kind of made sense for me. Right. And I agree. Sometimes I do walk into other classrooms and, you know, I, I see all the boxes are checked, right. You know, I'm seeing, okay, there's diversity on the walls and I'm seeing there's diversity in the books, you know, but then I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, this classroom itself is not very diverse. Right. <laughs> Our teaching staff is not very diverse, you know, and I'm looking around and, you know, there's language out there and, you know, it's like, okay, there's still work that needs to be done right, right. <laughs> to get us there, right? We were looking great, but I don't know if we're practicing great yet. Mm-hmm. And it takes time and it's hard. It's, and no one says it's going to be easy work. It's, you know, you can't just, you know, wave a magic wand and you are now, you know, anti-biased, anti-racist educators. It is hard, consistent, everyday work that gets us to getting closer to that point where we're having more inclusion. We're having, you know, classrooms that feel that can be authentic and can, you know, every child can show up as their true and authentic selves. Um, and that that's, you know, that's what we're, that's what we're striving for. That's where we're going. We're going to get there. Right. It is definitely, it's an ongoing process. And I think that that's also the other thing. Um, we have hit such a place where people want something, they're like, well, what can we do right now? Um, so I had a period where I was doing more facilitation of trainings, and I think one thing that I noticed um, when administrators would reach out or districts would reach out, um, they kind of want this box curriculum, right, this easy fix. And so wanting you to come in, right, do a one-day professional development with teachers, mm-hmm. and then the next day, right, wanting to do uh, classroom observations to, to kind of see if change had happened yet. Um, and so sometimes there's a discomfort with being able to acknowledge that even when we start to make the changes that we need to make, right, um, we're not always going to get it right. And we have to acknowledge that we're not always going to get it right because when we don't get it right, that is kind of where we're going to be tested. In. So what do we do now, right? How do we respond when I don't do something right, and I have to be called out, right, by Pierre Kari, um, or mm-hmm. when I'm in the position, and I think this is something that I've heard uh, teachers also kind of struggle with, and how do they hold others around them accountable? So if I see a peer that maybe is engaging in something, well, that's kind of harmful. Um, how do I call that out? Right. In a way that mm-hmm. still kind of embodies the spirit of restorative justice so that people aren't disposable and I'm yeah. not throwing people away. But I've still got to acknowledge, right, the impact mm-hmm. of this harm um, and that this practice is not what we want to do and that we're trying to do something. So hopefully hoping that people are you know, able to build communities where that yes. is more than norm 
accountable. Mm-hmm. How do we hold each other accountable in ways where we're not disposing of each other? Yes, yes. And I think that's where, you know, restorative justice really comes hand in hand with a lot of these practices because that is that return to community, that return to, you know, accountability. I think sometimes when people think of alternative ways of justice, you know, people think about, um, you know, like, oh, people aren't going to be held accountable or people are just going to get away with everything. Like everyone's just going to be able to hurt people and, you know, there's not going to be any repercussions for people's actions. And that's not quite the case. Like returning to community doesn't mean that nobody is, that people aren't being held accountable, that harm's not being acknowledged, right? It's that when we have a very punitive practice of you do harm, then you basically get harmed because of the harm, then it just kind of perpetuates a cycle that kind of is never ending where harm is just kind of continued, continued, continued. Whereas, you know, we go restorative justice route and you're looking at, okay, what as a community do we want to have? What values do we have? What's important to us? And what happens when people are outside of that community values? And how do we, like you're saying, you know, call people in so we're not just like throwing someone away because they've, you know, create they've caused harm. We're people, right? We're not perfect. We're not machines. <laughs> you know, we're we're gonna mess up. We're gonna, you know, say something, we're gonna do something. And a part of the beauty of being a, a human is that we can learn, is that we can change, is that we have the capacity to do that as long as we're willing and we want to. And being part of community is something most people are willing and want to be a part of, right? So looking at ways of how can we still hold people accountable for our actions and how can we call someone in and say, hey, harm was done. Let's look at it. Let's acknowledge it. Let's see how this is impacting our community, how this is impacting our, you know, our overall kind of safety. How's everyone feeling in this moment? And bringing that in and calling each other in is is so important, right? And I think that is sometimes a lot of the times why people don't want to engage in this kind of work of anti-racism and anti-bias work is because there's that fear of like, well, if I do it wrong, then, you know, I'm going to get canceled. Or if I do it wrong, you know, I'm going to get fired. And that really shouldn't be the case. And that's not really why it exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't exist to to point a finger and shame people for not knowing it. It, it seeks to increase the knowing of, hey, this, these things that are happening, there's harm that's happening. Let's acknowledge it. Let's look at it. You know, because the more we don't look at it, the more it hurts, right? Someone is hurting and we're not acknowledging that hurt. Uh, we're just kind of glazing right over it. And that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel safe. And that doesn't help our community in any way, right? Um, and so looking at, you know, how can we as a community have those values, hold people accountable and also continue to help and support people because that's what community does. Right, right. Yeah. And so kind of speaking on that, I know, like I said, it's not easy to do this kind of work and it does take a lot of introspection and it takes a lot of, you know, talking with people and working with people and building community. Um, and so it's not just on the the teacher's hands to do this. It is on, you know, our educational leadership, our administration. Um, it's on, you know, the community as at whole, as, as a large. Um, so what would you say for, you know, community or for, you know, educational leaders and admin who want, you know, to build a community and build an educational community that is supportive of this type of work? What can they do to kind of build that? And what can they do to support teachers as they're growing in this work as well? So that was, it was one of the themes that came up um, while talking to Black women educators in particular, 
this idea of, well, how are you able to sustain this work, right? So even when folks felt compelled as individuals to engage in anti-bias and anti-racist work with young children, um, it really, what pushed them, well, what either hindered them, right, or helped them to drive were their educational leaders. And so speaking from the space that we were in, uh, the practices that we were a part of, that we know kind of helped us to thrive um, in our practice, uh, included bringing everyone together, right? So creating those spaces for um, how do we build community? Kind of goes back to what we were saying about this sense of belonging. Um, so I didn't have an administrator or, well, administrators, because I would think, I, I say all of them were part of that community for us. Um, it wasn't just one administrator. But we didn't just come together, right, for faculty meeting or for staff meetings. Um, we did, right, when we needed to do our professional things. We, we did. We came together when we needed to. Yeah. But also, they made space and time for us to come together um, outside of our professional time, right? What does it look like? We talk about bringing yourself in. So I'm a mother of two boys. Um, I think all of my administrators were also parents. Um, but even for the folks who are not, what does it look like to be able to bring um, my family members, right, to our school potluck or our school gathering, right? Our little family engagement for us didn't just necessarily mean the caregivers and the parents of um, the students who were part of the school. Family engagement also meant the families of our educators and our staff members. So when we had these families, um, everyone came, right? And so folks who were, even if you weren't necessarily, even if you didn't have a child that was associated with our school, we were so inundated in the community that folks just within the community were like, oh, something's going on over there. Um, let's go hang out over there, right? And so I think you build community, educational leaders can help to create uh, this sense of community to where when we say, because we hear it all the time, people are like, oh, this was a family. And people do the side eye, they're like, I don't know, I'm not part of it. <laughs> But that's and that's a genuine, you know, that that's a genuine reaction. If you don't necessarily yeah. have just because you say that we're a family, right, doesn't mean that I feel part of that. Um, and then yeah. it goes back to this idea of well, because we are family, that means that sometimes we may not necessarily um, see eye to eye, right? And so what structures do we have in place for when we don't see eye to eye? Um, to access the question, and the first group they asked it, everyone was like, I don't even, I don't have an answer to that. They're like, who's your work best friend? And we were all like, my best friend isn't here. My best friend is, I don't have a work best friend. What does that even mean? But what they were trying to get us to, and it took, probably took a couple years, right? That first year, it didn't necessarily land as they thought it would, but over a couple years, we got to the place where we asked the question, who's your work best friend? The conceptual, how we conceptualized that was in this frame of when everything around you seems to be falling apart, right? Or on the flip side of that, when you are bursting joy and you can't wait to share it with someone, who in this building, right, is that person? Or who are those people? Um, and they said that if we have not created a space where everybody here has at least one person who fits that, um, 
then we're not doing what we need to do as leaders. And so I think that was important, mm. that it wasn't just their words that said, we want to make this a space where people belong. We want to make this feel, you know, like it's a family. Yeah. Um, they, they put the structures in place for that to happen. And I don't know that I've ever, well, I don't want to give the implication that that can't happen again. I feel like, but I think people have to be very intentional, right? Uh, very intentional about how you're going to invest your energy um, and how you are going to pour into uh, the educators that are in that space. Um, and how are you all going to work together to achieve that? Because mm-hmm. the buy-in for it, we all had to, that it had to be a collective, you know, buy-in. Because folks who didn't, yeah. didn't really <laughs> stay in the space. Yes. And I love that you've connected that with the intentionality. Mm-hmm. Because that is so important. I got a little activated when you said family because I was like, oh, geez, I've been in nonprofits. I've worked, I've worked in nonprofits. It's like, we're a family here. So we like, we can all work overtime. And it's like, that's not what that means. That part. <laughs> you know, if, they, if it's not me, we're going to take advantage or exploit our family, right? I would like for you yes. not to exploit me as my family member. Yes. Um, yes. But, you know, we have to. Yes. And so that was part of it, too. Having a, a shared understanding, mm-hmm. having some very real right? Tough conversations on, okay, when you say family, what do you mean? Because here's been my experience, right, of this. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you mean when you say it? And then how can we yes. get to a place where we maybe have the shared vision of what we want it to be, right? Here's where we are now. Yes. Here's where we aspire to be. Now, what do we have to do to kind of get there? Yes, yes. And those are so like all of that is just so important for building up that community and building up, you know, really cohesive team that does genuinely care about each other and does genuinely care about each other's well-being. You know, I've worked in places where that was the case where we had a really strong, solid team and it did feel very like, kind of family-esque, but, you know, the positive connotations of right. family, of course. Um, and, you know, just, I know that I could count on people or if I was struggling with something, you know, like, hey, I'm overwhelmed with all these, you know, things I got to do in the classroom because someone step in for me really fast. And without a doubt, someone would be there in seconds like I got you. And the way that that fills you up, because teaching, it's it's a hard profession. There's a lot that goes into it. It takes a lot out of you. It fills you up in a lot of really beautiful ways, but it, it also takes a lot. Um, and, you know, you have to do a lot. There's a lot of empathy and compassion. You can get compassion fatigue. And it's a lot. It's a lot that goes into it. And it's understandable that it's a field, a very high field where people do get burned out quite often. Um but having a team around you, that I, that is one of those factors that can help kind of mitigate or help prevent some of that burnout is if you have a really cohesive team and you know that you are supported and you know that your admin is supporting you, you know that your co-teachers and your coworkers are supporting you. And that can kind of help mitigate some of those really, really tough challenges that, that can come with the education field. And a lot of that is intentionality and really intentionally building that. Um, it doesn't, always just happen on its own there's there usually has to be some intentionality around it and some you know building and some work that goes into really creating it um and I've also like I said worked in those environments where people are like we're a family here and it just was traumatizing experience yes yeah. it can be <laughs> very toxic you know it could be very toxic so I'm like okay no <laughs> I think we need to re- redefine what you think family means huh? um but 
it is important. It's important that that community is there and that is kind of that role of that administrator and that leader in that role is to help to build that and help to kind of, you know, forage people and, and help people build those their best selves within their work. Um, I think sometimes we forget that when we get into management or we get into a leadership role, you know, we start thinking that it's this other thing or it's like, okay, well, I have to make everyone do this and I have to do that where it's like, not quite like your role as that manager is to uplift the people around you. Your role is to like kind of provide them the support so that they can really be their best selves. So they can show up as their best selves and, you know, that they can grow in whatever way growth looks like to them. So some people want to, you know, like, I want to become a manager. I want to become the director. I want to keep, you know, some people want to climb that ladder and that is their true desires. And some people are very okay with where they are and they just kind of want to be the best teacher that they can be. And both of those things are very okay, but that comes with knowing your team and knowing the community that you're within and kind of helping and supporting everyone to get to the, wherever it is they're trying to go, because that's what community does. Right, right. Um, I have another question for you. So in terms of intersectionality, mm -hmm. so, you know, as part of my podcast, I talk about, you know, it's a, it's an intersection of social justice and education. And I don't, I'm not sure if we've really talked about intersectionality on the podcast, like as, as it's, you know, it's a pretty big topic, you know? Um, and so when we're talking about intersectionality, it is looking at how, you know, two things can be true at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So my experience as a black person and my experience as a woman and that intersection of being a black woman <laughs> um, and how that kind of influences the work that I do. And it also influences how, you know, I am treated in society and it is, you know, how I, you know, how I express in the society. Um, and so we talk about intersectionality, you know, and how that shows up in our anti-bias and our anti-racist work in early childhood education. You know, how can we kind of influence educators to embrace that intersectionality and especially educators and leadership as well? Mm -hmm. So one of my colleagues, um, who's absolutely brilliant, uh, Dr. Ralupa Dia, uh, reminds me all the time, right, that when we talk about intersectionality, that we aren't just necessarily running down like this list of um, identity markers. And I was, you know, that's okay. That's important for us to to lift up, right? Especially when we ask um, educators to consider to consider this like intersectional lens, and we start by maybe doing one of our favorite anti-bias uh, activities, which is like some form of identity right? We love it. We love to do some form of identity mapping. Um, but it's also important to think about, as you said, what are the, the power dynamics, right? That kind of overlap when we're discussing all of these intersections of identity. I think it comes up for us as we think about so traditionally, uh, K-12 spaces have been, or teacher education spaces have been overwhelmingly white women. Um, I am in an instance mm. now where most of our students are black and Latinx women. Right? And so it's been a different experience as someone who's now on the higher ed in, um, as a black queer woman working with primarily black and Latinx women. Um, working also with a very a larger population of like LGBTQ folks than I have ever uh, worked with in a higher ed space before, and so thinking about how all of these we kind of operate with one another, um, the question has come up before: Well, 
what is it like when, um, let's say, Black women start having conversations about language bias and linguistic racism, mm-hmm. right, in early childhood classrooms? Like, that's come up for us, right? It's come up because folks are maybe have never been in a space where they've had to consider all of these things at one time, right? Mm-hmm. Where they've had conversations about, because sometimes we think well, when we have these conversations um, about critical self-reflection, that I'm just focusing this conversation on like the white women in the room who need to interrogate maybe around race and um, gender privilege and whatnot, or heteronormative privilege. Um, but in our case, we're talking to folks who are like, well, I've only, um, I'm from the South side of Chicago, so I've only ever spoken English. But then we get in a conversation about uh, dialect, right? And being bi-dialectal. And how does your view as an early childhood educator um, impact whether you think a standard form of a dominant language, right? Should be like forced upon young children. Um, That impacts you. Right? This idea yes. of power dynamics. And so I think that is how intersectionality has, has really shown up for how I engage with early childhood education. And it's been the push of having folks think about um, systemic oppression, right, from multiple lenses, um, yeah. and how that impacts how they're then going to engage with children and their families. Um, and how some of that internalized, right, those internalized messages, we talked a lot about narrative mm-hmm. storytelling. So the internalized stories that we have, stories that they've been passed down for generations, right, and how that shows up um, now that we are the educators. I love mentioning, you know, those power dynamics and how important they are when we are considering intersectionality, right? Because it's, it's not just like, I have these identities. Cool, that's great. Right. <laughs> our identities are really important to us, um, and they're important for our individuality, and they're important for our, you know, sense of belonging and community, right? But there's also that idea of these dynamics and how, you know, power, privilege, and oppression, how they also interact with how our identities are interacting out there and in, in the greater society, you know. And we all have identities that are, you know, part of what's considered the dominant and what's, you know, considered the non-dominant one um you know we all have those kind of intersections and so you know even as a black woman which is typically seen as kind of like the lower kind of social rung you know i also have identities that also put me more into the kind of dominant sphere as well so it's looking at how then does that privilege show up for me and what do i kind of what kind of earn unearned privileges do i have because of those identities and how is that showing up in my classroom and how is that showing up you know for the students who are again looking at me and looking to me as, you know, this, you know, being in the classroom that is, you know, like, obviously I know more than the children. So when I say things, they're like, wow, she's amazing. So they're looking to me to understand how the world is working. And if I'm not working on those internalized things that, you know, parts of my identity that either I don't know much about or parts of my identity that I do have unearned privileges from, if I'm not looking at those and I'm not acknowledging how that shows up in my everyday life, you know, there could be unintentional harm that is perpetuating that. Again, it's unintentional. I'm not trying to perpetuate harm, right? I don't think most people are trying to do that, but it does happen when we're, when we're not being intentional and when we're not looking at these things and being aware of how that impacts others. Um, so yes, love it. <laughs> yes. 
I do have one final question for you, and that is how do you reimagine education? Oh, that's a good one. So I think <laughs> when I think about reimagining education, um, I really think about my own process of learning and unlearning, right? I think about the teacher that I was when I did make the decision way back in 2004, 2005, um, you know, when I first fell in love children and decided that okay, I want to do this as a profession. Um, and I think about some of the ideas that I had at that time. Um, and though well-intentioned, right, a lot of those ideas were maybe, even then, still more focused on changing children or changing communities mm -hmm. of communities in some way. Um, and then now fast forward 20 years later, right? Thinking about, I wanna go to the children now and ask them how they want to imagine the world, right? I want to work alongside children to kind of make this new world. So I've been, over the last year, I've definitely on like my Octavia Butler Afrofuturism, uh, you know, space. And so we're gonna do all these earth seed things. <laughs> You know, we're going to go out, we're going to build communities and we're going to change the world. Mm -hmm. And it's really been this process of thinking alongside children, um, but having an intergenerational, right? Intergenerational freedom dreaming, I think, has been one of the things that has come up when reimagining education. So how can we ask children to think of the worlds that they want to thrive in? Um, how can I talk to my elders who have been through so much, right? Who've witnessed so much um, and maybe have them reflect on the things that they've gone through and maybe take those pieces that they've gone through. They're like, I want to see more of this. I want this to continue. Keep that. <laughs> of reflecting over past experiences, but also there's so much more, right, that I want to experience. So, this sense of intergenerational freedom dreaming, having the space where we can do that, right? Um, I think about educators being able to come into spaces where they don't feel like they have to uh, check parts of themselves at the door, right? Um, again, the other day I was like, there's certain parts of me that I felt were very well represented maybe within my, through my educational journey, and then parts that were not. Right? Um, and I just never necessarily expected them to be reflected there because they never had been. Um, and I would love for that to be a shift where educators don't feel like they have to check parts of themselves at the door um, and they can go into those spaces um, whole. And so create spaces where people are coming in whole um, our adults are whole, right? Our elders. So I think that creates this wholeness of the community. Yes, yes, yes. I love this. I love the mention of the intergenerational impact of that. And again, that goes back to building community and everyone being a part of that community, right? Because, you know, homogenous, you think of a homogenous community and it's like, 
Um, yeah. <laughs> there you are, you know, but there's so much beauty in having a community that is filled with, you know, people of different ages, of different backgrounds, of different cultures, right? It, it brings so many different perspectives in it. And, you know, bringing our elders into the conversation is so important. They have, they've seen so much, they've been through so much, they've experienced so much, and they have so much, you know, to, to pass on and so much to provide that, you know, why would we exclude them from that? <laughs> Yes, intergenerations. I love that. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Megan. Um, where can my audience find you if they're looking to connect? If they're looking for um, anything that you're you're coming out with, anything to be look on the lookout for? Yeah. Um, so there are probably two spaces that I operate in most. Um, one is my website. Um, so it's drmegangoen.com. Don't get confused by that name. Um, but also on X formerly known as Twitter. Um, so at Dr. Megan Well, thank you so much, Megan. I really appreciate you joining me. I learned so much. I'm sure my audience learned a lot. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for just taking the time out of your day to speak with me. It's an absolute pleasure getting to meet you. It was so nice meeting you. Thank you for tuning in to Conscious Pathways. Don't forget to like, share, and follow Conscious Pathways wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, also, don't forget to share or leave a rating or review. It really does help the podcast to grow and reach more listeners just like you. Um, don't forget, uh, click out, check out the link in the show notes for bookshop.org, where you can get an additional 15% off, off of the curated Black History Month list, um, and then add the code BHM24 to check out to get your additional 15% off. Um, if you love supporting this podcast, if you love supporting in local independent bookshops, um, and you love supporting Black authors, then check out that link in the show notes. And until then, don't forget to navigate your conscious journey with courage and kindness. And I'll see you then for more transformative conversations in education.